Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, you've stumbled into an installation service. Uh, that means that we are going to install one of our pastors, Greg Bainey, uh, into the position of an associate pastor. Greg is an ordained pastor and has been for a number of years now. Uh, but we are making the switch, the move from assistant pastor to associate pastor and installing him in that. And uh, sometimes that is a little known difference that people don't always understand, but assistant pastor means that it was the session that called him uh, to serve here, and because the session called him, he's not a member of the session. And no one can be a member of the session who votes and leads and governs this church that you haven't elected. And so uh, having spent a number of years ministering with Greg and, uh, and his ministry among us, and the session feels that it is time to affirm uh, his ministry and his place among us, that... Uh, and I would even say personally that Greg and I, are, that I have found a true partnership with Greg over these many years and are delighted to have him called by you. We took that vote a number of weeks ago uh, to make this move from you, and I think the, it was an overwhelming number, 98 or 99 percent, uh, said let's do it. Let's install Greg as an associate pastor, make him a full member of the session, affirm his ministry among us, uh, and it is a delightful opportunity to do so. So what makes it installation is just a couple of things we're going to do a little different. One, the music has sort of been chosen with the theme in mind. I'm going to preach a sermon that is somewhat, I'm preaching, I'm going to be preaching to Greg, uh, but I'm going to invite you to listen in because uh, I'm going to be loud about it, so you may as well. <clears throat> but I think it will have some uh, application and, and uh, helping you to understand how we understand how uh, our call to preach the Word of God. And then, uh, and then following the sermon, there is a, a commission. The, uh, the only ones who can actually install a minister in a Presbyterian church uh, is the presbytery. And therefore, the presbytery uh, ordains a commission. Uh, commission is, has the power to do something on their behalf. And so uh, there are a few of us who have been set as a commission, and we're going to ask some questions of him and you and, and then give a charge to him and you as well, and then uh, and we will pray and install. With all that being said, uh, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Uh, <clears throat> a word of God about the word of God. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers that will suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. But as for you, dear brother, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for these words from Paul to Timothy that you have preserved for us. Speak them afresh into our lives as your church. Speak them afresh with power to uh, shape and mold the way we think about what we do here. 
and why we do it. Come near this morning in presence and power. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Nero, emperor of Rome in the mid-60s A.D., was going mad. A fire had burned half of Rome. He needed a scapegoat. Conveniently, Christians were already on the margins, and so he picked them up as a scapegoat for his, uh, his anger and to siphon off the attention and the responsibility. And as he's going mad, then he begins to pursue an intense persecution of Christians in which Paul gets swept up. And so Paul writes this letter, 2 Timothy, from a Roman prison uh, a few years after the burning of Rome in A.D. 64 as the persecution breaks out. This is written about A.D. 67, shortly before Paul is beheaded at the hands of Rome. So Paul knows he's probably about to die. He's writing his last letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, who he brought to the faith, nurtured in the faith, has seen him come to take up the pastorate in the church in Ephesus. And so he's his spiritual son, and Paul mentors him through letters and and visits with him and uh, loves this young man. And you could tell by reading 1 and 2 Timothy, letters from Paul to this young man. But here as Paul writes what is his very last letter, at least that we have, this is Paul's last letter to his spiritual son, with his final instructions, as he knows he is going home to be with his Lord. Final instructions. So, these last words are important. And of his letter, and his other than the greetings and the things that follow, these are really his last words directed at Timothy. And he gives some greetings and he closes out, says some things about himself and closes the letter. So these are literally his last words to Pastor Tim. On his way out. Donald Guthrie writes and he says the solemnity of the present charge is doubly impressive as the parting advice of an aged warrior to his younger and rather timid lieutenant. Timothy had, I mean he prayed, remember we have have not received a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power and and a sound mind, right? So Paul, you know, in, in other places has encouraged this young man to boldness in his ministry. So here he says, I charge you. I charge you. I solemnly insist on this thing toward you. I I strongly urge you, Timothy, as I go, as my last words to you, I strongly urge you. This is my foremost desire as as your spiritual father to my spiritual son, as a dying man who is leaving a legacy. Timothy, I urge you. And listen to the power and the urgency that Paul gathers together in this charge. Right? He gathers these things and it shows the level of importance that Paul places on it. As he gathers these images before Timothy as he wants him to take hold of this charge. He says, I charge you, and he could have just said, preach the word. But he doesn't, right? He brings the solemnity of all these things, and he says, I charge you in the very presence of your God and of Christ Jesus, the Lord and King, the one who is the judge of the living and the dead, 
The one who is coming again, his appearing in his kingdom, which is coming. So in light of God and his Christ and his coming and his kingdom, his appearing and his judging, in light of all of these things, these spiritual realities, I give you this charge. So he gathers these realities into Timothy's mind and heart, just as we and as you brothers should gather them into your heart as you hear the charge. It is in the light of, in the face of, these eternal realities. Under the weight of them, he says, I charge you, brother, preach the word. Preach the word. That's your business. That's what you should be about. Now, before we talk about the actual charge, let's just talk just a moment about applying, I guess, the accountability and the motivation that Paul places you know, uh, inside the, the, the charge itself before he actually tells him to preach the word. You know, the couple things, that, as he places it in the context of these realities, there are two things that I pull from it that for, for us as those who preach the word, is one, the preacher's accountability, to whom we are accountable as we do our job. Because Paul clearly lays it out to whom the preacher is accountable. He says you're to preach not as in the presence of a bunch of people who are going to judge your sermon, tell you on the way out what they thought of it. You know, or in the presence of people who are week by week, you know, he says, he doesn't say, you know, preach, you know, because and gather these earthly, you know, there are a lot of things that he could say, you know, your job depends on it. You know, preach in such a way, there are a lot of things he could have said. But he gathers these realities and says, your accountability is to none of those things. Push them out of your mind. Let these realities reign. It's not to the people of the church, but to the Lord of the church. The one who calls. The one who gifts. The one who judges. The one who is coming. The one whose kingdom we proclaim. He is the one to whom we will give an account of how we did our job. Of what we do. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For I'm now seeking, am I now seeking the approval of man, of men and women, of people, or of God? Or am I trying to please men? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, then I would not be a servant of Christ. And you see the dynamic there? If you seek to be a pleaser of people, you are not a servant of Christ. We can't. Right? In order to be the servant of Christ, he says, you can't be a people pleaser. But I'll tell you, one of the number one temptations of a pastor is to be a people pleaser. We want to be liked. We want you to like our preaching. We want you to like our ministry. We want you to, you know, there is in so many ways that we want. And the temptation then is to give people what they want so they'll like you, as opposed to giving them what you feel like they need because Christ has called you to speak for him. Not only to the preacher's motive, uh, uh, accountability, that it, we will stand before Christ on that day, but also to our motivation. As he gathers these things, he says, as you preach the word, I, I'm going to charge you with me because as you preach these things, uh, the, the, the realities in which you stand when you speak, the, the realities that motivate, that, that, that undergird what we are about to say, that we that we do our work under the eye or in the presence, he says, in the very presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. 
in the very presence of God. This is where we do. This is the motivation as we stand to preach. We stand in the presence. We stand in the reality of His coming kingdom and the judgment that will follow. And so we preach with that, in a sense, sobriety on our shoulders. The life and power of our preaching flows from these realities. That God is reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. And His kingdom is coming. As is the day we will stand before Him. And so, brother, it must be your own experience of His righteousness, of His forgiveness, of His mercy, of His love, of His presence and power in your life from which these things must come. Because you will stand before Him and the motivation for them is actually the realities of Him in your own life. You know Him and you stand in His righteousness in Christ. And you look down the road and you see the coming of His kingdom and you taste it and you seek to give God's people a taste of it. It is the weight of these realities and all of their joy and power and hope and reality that we speak, that you speak. And so, Greg, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, and in the presence and the power of His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Word of God. Paul's final emphasis and instruction is the very heart of a preacher's calling. There are so many things that we are called to do. There's so many things that we do. We, we exist in this community to which we serve and minister. And it's very easy that all the other elements of our ministry, especially as a church grows and becomes a certain size, it's very easy to let the preaching of the Word take a back seat. The time to prepare, the time to pray, the time to soak in the Word so that it lives for you, so that it can live for them. It is very easy for the Word to not have the presence, the power, the place, the priority that Paul, the Scripture, that God places on it in the life of a church. If there's one thing I can tell you, Timothy, on my way out the door, preach the Word of God to His people. Preach the Word. Preach God's words. See, you serve a God who speaks. You know, a God who is not silent. A God who has spoken and who continues to speak. And so we preach God's words. We don't, we don't have to invent the message. I don't have to come up with what to say in a sense. I've got to figure out actually what He said and help help you to understand. Otherwise, we, we preach His Word. Speak what God has already spoken. That's our job. You stand as the king's messenger. And in that sense, as a messenger of the king, you have no right to speak and preach anything else but His Word to His people. Not politics, not opinions, not popular self-help. Not so many ways that the pulpit goes. Why? Because that's what the people like. That's what pleases them. You know, and at some level, we'll start giving them more and more of what they want rather than what the king has said, which is preach my word. Faithfully, systematically, accurately, carefully, powerfully, his word. Robert Murray McShane, a preacher of the 18th century, 19th century, he said, is not the word 
the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that in fact it is. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is not the, the Word, the sword of the Spirit. Should not our great work be to take it out of its scabbard, to cleanse it from all of its rust, and then to apply its sharp edge to the consciences of men and women in the life of the church? Right? That's the job. Preach the Word. Take it out of its scabbard. Give it its sharpness and drive it home in the life of God's people. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. So it's a double-edged sword, but it's sharper than any human sword or any physical sword. It is a sword of the Spirit. And the Word of God is sharper than any sword because it's living and it's active and it pierces the very division of the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions. God's Word penetrates to the hearts and minds of his people with a power and a sharpness that nothing else can. Opening the heart, forming God's people. So the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform and to shape the people of God. That's how he has designed it. That's how it's done. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God in your hand and in your mouth to shape and transform the people of God. So preach the word. Be ready in season and out. In season and out can mean a lot of things. It means all the time. And so for all the time for us, it includes a lot of things. It doesn't mean just not on Sunday, but other days. But it means whether people are inclined to listen to it or not. And there are times, he says, time's coming. People aren't going to want to listen to sound teaching. But you're to preach it in season and out, whether it's in season, like and people are, are into it or not. Preach it whether they're inclined to listen or not, whether you feel like it or not whether you feel like it or not. Brother, the more you do it, I don't know that you understand that we're just normal guys who sometimes don't get enough sleep and are tired, who are sometimes discouraged at things in their life or things in the church or whatever, sometimes downright depressed. You know, sometimes uh, there are all the different things that come into your life that you don't, you don't even feel like going to church. You ever think that one of us doesn't feel like going to church? Not an option. There are so many different ways that we're just human beings in every way. That's what he says, in season and out of season. Whether you feel like it or not, preach the word. Stand and trust not in your own strength, but in the strength of the presence of God and of his Christ who calls you to speak, he says. And so whether you feel like it or not, in season and out of season, you have to be ready to preach. And being, and being ready means everything to do with, with you and who you are. A lot of times a preacher will miss this. And it's all about mastering a skill and being able to put something together on paper and to be able to, or logical or whatever it is. But, but the reality is that, that the, actually the true heart of preaching that makes preaching preaching is the man. It's who you are. Your relationship with Christ, knowing him and loving him. The readiness of your soul, your personal spiritual life to be a conduit of a word from God to his people. John Stott says, one might single out the freshness of spiritual experience as the first and indispensable quality of an effective preacher. That means your own fresh spiritual experience, living it yourself, experiencing it yourself, knowing him yourself, delighting in him yourself, depending on him yourself, living and walking with him daily. This freshness of spiritual experience is the 
first indispensable quality. No amount of homiletical technique can compensate for an absence of a close personal walk with God. And as you guys know, and as we discover, that's hard over a lifetime. That's hard over a lifetime, staying fresh in your walk with God. You guys ever go... Dry times, desert times, hard times. Preaching flows through the preacher. Flows out of a genuine life. It's not just an intellectual exchange of ideas from one head to another. It actually comes through a person. A whole person preaches. The only way that it really takes on a whole life and not just as an intellectual proposition. The whole person preaches, not just the mind. And so a whole person is preached too. And so to be ready to preach is both mind and heart. To be ready to preach is both light and heat. It's both clarity and fire. It is the whole self brought to the Word. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, preaching is... Logic on fire. And the fire is the person. It's, it's your own spiritual flame. Preaching is logic on fire. It's eloquent reason. It is theology coming through a man who is on fire. And so he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Be ready in season and out of season to do what? To reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. Three commands. Address the mind, the emotions, and the will. A whole person preaching to whole people. To reprove is to convict of sin. That's the idea that comes with it. To reprove is to convict of sin. Interestingly, in John 16, 8, we're told that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and righteousness. But as the Holy Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin, He does it through the Word of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God, to convict, to transform, and to form His people. And so, it is through the Word that we reprove, that the Spirit reproves through His Word in the act of preaching as it comes home to the hearts and minds of His people. We reprove and we rebuke, which naturally follows. It's being, bringing that true judgment that addresses the heart of a person and calls them to repentance. To reprove is one thing, and to rebuke and to call to repentance, to call to Christ, to, to lay it on God's people, to call them to follow Him and to walk with Him and to honor Him. And then to exhort, and the word that's there translated as exhort is the word parakaleo. Some of you would recognize it as the word, again, of the Holy Spirit in the upper room in John 15, 16, where Jesus says, I'm going to send you a parakaleo, the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the verb form, but he's going to send you a paraclete. He's going to send you a comforter, you know, he's going to, an exhorter. He's going to send you to the, to the work of the Holy Spirit is going to be to exhort, to be the comforter. To come, it literally means to come alongside. So after you've reproved and brought conviction and, and rebuked and called to repentance, it says that you exhort, that you come alongside as the comforter, as the one who applies the balm of the gospel and of God's grace and his mercy and speaks that word of forgiveness, right? And, and the whole process 
In other words, faithful biblical preaching is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. You have to afflict the comfortable until they're not comfortable. And then when, you, when the Lord has them in his hand, then we comfort the afflicted with the gospel and his grace. We awaken consciences and we apply the gospel into their lives. The formation of God's people through his word. Cotton Mather says the great design and intention of preaching in the office of the Christian preacher is to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of men. That's loftier than I've thought about it sometimes, huh? But that's the preacher's role through taking the word of God and presenting it to God's people and calling them to repentance and, and calling them under the lordship of Christ to return in all those ways. It is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men through the foolishness of what is preached. People are saved. He says, do it with confidence. I mean, with patience. (laughs) Do it with patience, complete patience. And with teaching. Long-suffering. Not being weary of doing good. And he says, but with teaching. Some people think that preaching and teaching are different. At some level, maybe they are. (laughs) There there are elements in, in in the classroom maybe that are different than here. But I would say this, that preaching... Preaching is more than teaching, but it's not less. And the preaching includes teaching, includes doctrine. The word here that is being translated teaching is often, in other translation, is doctrine, with sound doctrine. And he says you preach the word and you do it very patiently with all teaching and all doctrine. And folks think, you know, now the doctrine belongs somewhere else. And I tell you, it doesn't. It belongs. Oh, it, And hear me in a minute, we start talking about itching ears where it does belong, where the church actually needs good, sound doctrine. Preaching is more than teaching, but it is not less. The renewed mind is a biblical mind, shaped. The heart of the Great Commission is to make disciples, and we forget that making disciples, we think it's about conversion. We think it's about making conversions, but that's not what he's saying. He doesn't say just go make conversions of the nations. He says make disciples of the nations baptizing them and teaching them everything. That's making a disciple. Making a convert's one thing. Making a disciple is a whole other thing. You're going to baptize them into the life of the church and teach them everything, he says. The whole counsel of God. That's Jesus' parting commission charge to his church. Teach him everything. Preach the word. We do it, we open the scripture to make it understandable and applicable. Bishop Usher says, to make hard things easy is the work of a great preacher. It's hard work, but it's the work of a great preacher that we strive to take those things and open them up for God's people. The greatest temptation that you will face will be to be a popular preacher. And what it takes to be The preacher described here and a popular preacher are very different. But our temptation is to be a popular preacher. The power and the draw of it is strong. And when you see others and you see it out there, it is hard. But he says the day is coming, verses 3 and 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They're going to have itching ears. You know, they, they want scratched. You know, they, want you to, they want you to tickle their ear with the things that they want to hear. They want to hear certain things, and they're going to ask you to tickle it for them. 
Give them what they want. That's the great message, and, and that's even the message in the church these days. Give the people what they want. It's a dangerous temptation because in as many ways we want to. They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we see it in so many places. They'll tell you, don't preach doctrine. That's too... But the Bible's full of it. How can you preach the word and not preach it? They're going to tell you, don't preach hard things. It makes us work and it's, you know... The Bible's full of hard things. You must preach them. Maybe try to make them easy. You know, that's the job is try to make them easy, but the Bible's full of them. And we don't just put all of that aside to go on. They'll say, don't be so narrow. You know, people come in, they'll be offended. They'll leave. Don't be so narrow. But Jesus is narrow, right? Jesus is narrow. So he calls us. We have to be as narrow as Jesus. Itching ears will find teachers to suit their passions. They'll turn away. They'll wander off. They'll go to another church. And it'll be the big church. They're telling them what they want to hear. If you want to be a big church, tone it down. Dumb it down. Preach easier, nicer, positive. Do short, easy, entertaining sermons. That's what the people want. But don't give them what they want, brother. David Hansen says, he has a little book on pastoring, and he has a chapter on preaching, and he says this, preaching is a form of aggression. Preaching is a form of aggression. Why? Because as we preach, Yahweh, the God of war, is conducting a holy war to conquer territory and the field of conflict, the human heart, the hearts of his people. And it's a form of aggression as God is coming to take his territory back. The flesh is going to scream. It's not going to like it. The flesh resists the spirit. When you don't feel like coming to church, you don't feel like opening your Bible, you don't feel like doing, you know, whatever, you understand the flesh resists the spirit. It's a war. These two are at odds with each other. And, it, and even in here, in, in preaching, there's going to be the flesh and sometimes will scream. But the human heart is the most fiercely guarded piece of ground in the universe. And God is at war to take it back. Preaching is a form of aggression. A.W. Pink says, the substitution of so-called practical preaching for the doctrinal exposition, which it has supplanted, is the root cause of many of the evil maladies which afflict the church of God. The reason why there is so little depth and so little intelligence and so little grasp of the fundamental verities of Christianity is because so few believers have been established in the faith through the hearing of the doctrines of grace expounded in their churches. The Barna, Barna polls are telling us, you know, the Barna, he does all these polls, and he tells us the state of the, state of the union, the state of the church. And Barna tells us we're losing the younger generation of the church to a secular worldview, a secular morality, to secular things. And the question becomes, why are we losing our young people? And I, I believe it's, we're not losing our young people because we have not taught them practical life skills. I believe that we're losing them because we've not given them a vision of the awesome and powerful and holy God of the Bible. We have not given them a God-entranced worldview from the pulpit. We have not opened the scripture in the power and the beauty of what it, God says as he reveals himself to his people and we're, we're preaching to be light. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what is the chief end of preaching? <laughs> I like to think it is this. 
It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. A sense of God and His presence is the most practical thing in the world. It changes everything. And so, my brother, the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching. And you will be tempted to give them what they want. Paul says, as for you, don't do it. I charge you to preach the word. As for you, be sober-minded. That is, be watchful for the enemy, watchful for the temptations that come after your own soul, watchful for the wolves that will come in and demand other things and seek to reshape things. Be aware of the siren's call, the temptation to be popular rather than faithful, to give people what they want rather than what they need. God has called you to preach His Word, to speak the words He's already spoken with power to His people. And then He says to endure suffering. My friend, if you do a faithful job in it, you will suffer. You just stick with it long enough, brother. Your hair will go gray and start falling out and you'll stop sleeping at night and, you know. Don't be surprised. That's what Paul's telling them. Don't be surprised at suffering. You will endure suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't back away. Don't be, don't be discouraged, as hard as that may be some days. Finally, with that thought, let me just give you, he says, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, preach the evangel, the gospel. Preach the gospel to God's people and to the world. Call people out of their rebellion to the lordship of Christ. Right? There are two sides to the gospel, and that is a key one. Calling people out of their rebellion under the lordship of Christ to bow the knee to Christ the King. J.S. Stewart says, this is no time to be offering a reduced milk and water religion. Far too often the world has been presented with a mild and undemanding form of Christianity, half Christianity. He says, preach Christ in the total challenge of his high and imperious claim. Preach Christ as Lord, absolute Lord, reigning Lord, Son of God at the right hand of the Father who is coming with his kingdom, who reigns now and will reign forever. Preach him in his high and imperious claim upon our lives that we should deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him. J.C. Ryle says, let us never doubt for a moment that the preaching of a Christ crucified, the old story of his blood and righteousness and substitution, that it is enough for all the spiritual necessities of mankind. It is not worn out. It is not obsolete. It has not lost its power. We need nothing new, nothing more broad and kind, nothing more intellectual, nothing more effectual. Preach the word. Christ crucified, resurrected, and reigning. And in doing these things faithfully, fulfill your ministry. Preach the word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning as those who have received the gift of your word. We thank you for the scripture and the gift that it is to your church. We thank you that you are a God who is not silent. But you are a God who speaks. We long to hear your voice in power calling us out of ourselves, awakening us from our complacency, 
filling us with your spirit and putting us on the path and the narrow way to a life that is in Christ and like him. Father, we thank you for Greg and the calling that you have placed on his life, the gift that you have given him. And we pray, Father, that you would give him clarity and boldness of heart, that in his days ahead as he stands to handle the word of God rightly, that he would preach your word faithfully, clearly, accurately, powerfully, for the glory of your name and the good of your church. We ask it. Amen. We invite the commission to come forward. Greg, if you also will come forward. Have you come up here, brother? Everybody come up here. All right, in the uh, process to install, there are a series of things. Uh, all right, I didn't get you a microphone, though. I'll walk down to give you mine. Questions to the uh, minister. So we're going to ask uh, Greg to, uh, Ron, to ask Greg the questions of his vows. Greg, are you willing to take charge of this congregation as their associate pastor? Agree- agreeable to your declaration and accepting his call? I am. Do you consciously believe and declare as far as you know, your own heart, that in taking upon this charge, you're influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of the church. I do. Do you solemnly promise that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all duties of an associate pastor to this congregation, will be careful to maintain a deportment in all respects, becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ, agreeable to the ordination engagements. I do. While we've called Greg, he doesn't uh, minister in a vacuum. Part of our responsibility as a congregation is to support him and serve him. So these questions are for you and for me as congregation. And I would ask that you acknowledge by raising your right hand at at each question. Do you, the people of this congregation, continue to Profess your readiness to receive Greg Bainey, whom you have called to be your pastor. If you acknowledge, please raise your right hand. Okay. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love? Please acknowledge. Okay. Do you promise to encourage him in his labors and to assist his endeavors for your instruction in spiritual edification? Please acknowledge. Do you engage to continue to him while he is your pastor that competent worldly maintenance which you have promised and to furnish him with whatever you may see needful for the honor of religion and for his comfort among you? Do you acknowledge? All right. I've uh, preached what I feel is the heart of your calling. Uh, the center of it, but it's not the fullness of your calling. So I want to balance out the sermon with the charge, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes to a congregation, and he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, the church, 
God's people. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the word preached, but also our own selves because you had become so very dear to us. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. I love the way Paul takes then and wraps this ministry of the same things we just talked about, of encouraging you, exhorting you, and charging you to walk in a manner worthy, all the things of reproving and rebuking and uh, all of these things, and he wraps them in relationship. He said, you have become so very dear to me that in all that I did in my preaching, you know, I was like a nursing mother as I sought to, to care for you and to feed you and to help you. And like a father with his children, I was among you. And so he speaks to the relationship that a shepherd should have with his people. And so I would encourage you that as you take seriously the call uh, to preach the word, to take also seriously the call and the charge, to be so very affectionately desirous of God's people of the church, that they would become so very dear to you that you would share with him not only the gospel of God, your very self as well. I was going to start out talking about Presbyterians and way called ministry, and Robert stole my thunder on that. <laughs> To charge the congregation, what I wanted to dwell in is prayer. I want to encourage you to be a praying congregation for your new minister. Uh, ministers spend a lot of time out of sight. You don't see what he's doing. Uh, he studies in his path to teach. He studies to preach. And you don't see that. Pray for him that he will use his time well, wisely, budget his time, and the things that you don't see him doing, he will be doing the right things. The second thing is, is he is a team member. You have a, a pastor, an associate pastor. We now have a music director and we now have a youth director, but we also have Heather and uh, Alisa, the six of them making up a team of which Greg is gonna be a part. Pray that he will be a good team member. I spent four years as an associate pastor in a large church in Florida, and I was not a good team member. I had a lot of disagreements with my senior pastor, particularly on matters of race, so I left. Uh, he's got to work with you. Pray that he will. I want to also encourage you to have the session, the congregation let the session know that you want your ministers properly accounted for financially. The session should be pressured by the people to be sure that your minister has life insurance, disability insurance, health insurance. Also, the congregation should not expect the preacher's wife to be anything more than what she would be if he were not the pastor in the church. Just another member doing her work and she's gonna do that. There are gonna be days when Greg comes home feeling beat. And the first face he's, face he's gonna see is 
going to be that of his wife. What she'll have to do is hold him up and calm him down. <laughs> uh, pray for him. That's my whole appeal to you today is pray for him as a team member, as he ministers the word. You know, we had three preachers here at one time when Morgan was here. All three of them are committed to the scriptures as the word of God. But all three of them had different styles of preaching and meant different styles of preparation. Pray for Greg in that regard. He teaches Sunday school and he preaches. I want to commend Robert for letting his associates and assistant pastors preach because that's the lifeblood of a minister. Pray for him. That's my word to you. I ask you to gather around. We're going to let me say a word of prayer as we uh, think he's installed, but we'll pray it into place. Let's uh, pray for him. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you love us. And we know that you love your church. Uh, you have bled for her. You have bought her. And you provide for her in every way. And one way you do it is by gifting and calling uh, men into the ministry. Thank you for Greg and the gift that he has been to this church. Father, we ask that you would lay your hand upon him that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would use him in the life of this church, that indeed you would help him to love your people, that he would share not only the gospel of God, but, in, but himself as well. And we pray, Father, also that you would help him to be faithful to your word, that he would be uh, under, living under, preaching under, serving under uh, your eye, your calling, your coming, your kingdom, and that it would empower him from inside out with a grace and a strength uh, to do what you've called him to do. We ask and we pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Looking in my direction. So we give you the right hand of fellowship, brother. Welcome. <laughs> Love you, man. So I have this pronouncement. I now pronounce and declare that Greg Bainey has been regularly called and installed as associate pastor of this congregation, agreeable to the Word of God and according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that, as such, he is entitled to all support, encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we conclude our service, singing what a firm foundation the Lord has given us for his church because he's laid it in his excellent word. <laughs> 